O blessed communion, fellowship divine, through our lives, Lord, be glorified. Amen. So I just spent the last week in England, and on the flight home from London, I got chatting to the person next to me and said, somehow found a way to sneak into the conversation that I had a chance to meet the Archbishop of Canterbury and took up my phone and showed him a picture. He said, oh, it's very interesting. I just had a chance to meet the Pope, which I thought was entirely unfair, random occurrence. He had been to Bahrain and I had been to Canterbury. But part of that week was an opportunity to worship at Westminster Abbey, joining a thousand-year historical line of those who have made their pilgrimage to the church, founded by English king and saint Edward the Confessor. It was predictively beautiful in word and song. The Abbey Choir, who are almost as good as the Choir of All Saints Atlanta, <laughs> sing with a rare calm and poise. The clergy, although seemingly trapped in 1950s central casting of posh, white and male, are nevertheless articulate. The decor is hard to beat, with names of the great and sometimes good etched in stone on the abbey floor, ranging from the ironic final resting place of atheist physicist Stephen Hawking, to the world's first tomb to the unknown soldier. I was at the abbey with the Compass Rose Society, a fundraising body of which All Saints is a charter member. It supports the Archbishop of Canterbury's work across the global Anglican Communion, the 80 million or so Christians around the world with whom we have the Archbishop in common as our spiritual leader. Given our group was mostly from Canada, Hong Kong and the US, worship at Westminster Abbey kept our collective Anglophile longings well fed. The highlight of our time there was for me after the service, during a private tour of the Abbey where as a special treat we were permitted to enter the shrine of St. Edward behind the high altar. It's a tight space. Two very royal looking chairs sit at St. Edward's feet for the sole use, they reminded us, of King Charles and his queen. A few less ornate seats form a small circle and in the center is the tomb within which the body of Edward lies. Edward is the only monarch of England to have been made a saint, which any student of British history will hardly find surprising. He was canonized because of his alleged healing power and had such standing among the English after his death in the 11th century that people would make pilgrimage to the abbey just to visit his tomb. Given Edward's popularity, stone railings have been built under the tomb that allowed people to get their bodies as snug to the relic of the saint as possible, longing for that closeness to heal their own infirmities. Nowadays, the dean and chapter at the Abbey frown upon tomb hugging as a legitimate expression of Anglican religion, which I thought was rather disappointing, so we were denied our chance. All the same, the image of our ancient Anglican forebears gripping the grave of Edward got me thinking about our own religious identity 
and ask how much we may or may not be the modern-day equivalents of ecclesiastical tomb-huggers looking to our religion to heal us, seeking to shelter our woundedness in the safe harbour of a religion designed to make us feel better about our place in the world. To whatever degree that might be true, the danger of a religion whose primary encouragement is for us to feel better is that we lose sight of the more expansive desire Christian faith inhabits that wants to see the world better too. What's worse is that such self-oriented religion also runs the risk of seeing people who compromise the fulfillment of our needs as problems to be solved rather than people to be engaged. Leaving the Abbey behind us, later in the week we made our way to the second ancestral home of our tradition, Canterbury Cathedral, considered the mother church of the Anglican Communion. The story of Canterbury offers a very different kind of shrine to help us think about what it means to follow Christ. As old churches go, Canterbury is getting up there. When the Normans built Westminster Abbey, Canterbury Cathedral had already been a place of worship for 400 years. Part of the mission of St. Augustine of Canterbury, sent by Pope Gregory the Great to make Roman Christians of the English. The only problem for Augustine was that upon arrival, he discovered that the people there were already versed in the Celtic Christianity St. Patrick had brought down from the north, although apparently not very keen on practicing it. Nothing much has changed. Augustine's immediate reaction, writing to Pope Gregory, essentially said, how can I fix these people? A question that has been asked by visitors to the British Isles for centuries since. It is Gregory's reply that is most instructive for us today, which essentially said, don't try to fix them. Instead, offer to them the best of what you know and receive from them the best of what you hear. In other words, be in communion. The religion Gregory invited Augustine to found, therefore, was one that expected to meet Christ in the lives of others. How fitting, therefore, that the image of the compass rose, the symbol of the Anglican communion, which pictures the light of Christ spreading out to the four corners of the world, is now set into the floor of that great cathedral, reminding all who make their pilgrimage there that we are intended to be beings in communion with the world. From the shelter of the shrine of the healer King Edward, to the outward-looking vision of Canterbury, we see a true reflection of the life of faith, that we always live in the tension between self-oriented and other-inclined religion. Self-oriented religion is the safe space we all fall back to once in a while, and we should expect that when we face pain or sorrow, we will find one another more proximate to the shrines of our faith, not necessarily expecting a healing, yet in need of the comfort of the divine healer whose first word to all of us is love. 
Yet being oriented toward ourselves is not our intended state. And one of the tremendous gifts of the worldwide Anglican communion is how it continually draws us out of ourselves. While we might wonder about the attendance levels or interest among the population at large in the Episcopal Church, across the majority of the members of the Anglican communion who live in the global south, Basic concerns over widespread hunger and poverty, infant mortality and elementary education are what the church is focused on. These are our relationships that help us hear the words in Jesus' Sermon on the Plain about the hungry and the poor, not as ancient abstractions, but as present-day realities. For it is one thing to imagine that there is poverty and hunger in the world we live in. It is another to know that this poverty and hunger is within our own ecclesiastical family. So given that our calling might be to be beings in communion, to live in communion with a global community, what should our reply be to that call? Well, as I pondered that question, this weekend in particular, one particular issue reached the top of my mind as leaders from around the world begin meeting in Egypt for the latest COP summit, looking to prevent the planet from reaching a tipping point of no return where life on earth is no longer sustainable as we know it. And I know it sounds dramatic to say it that way, but as far as I am able, and that may well be limited, to read the science, it is where we are at. The Secretary General of the United Nations, Antonio Guterres, puts it plainly. Half of humanity is in the danger zone from floods, droughts, extreme storms, and wildfires. No nation is immune. We have a choice, collective action, or collective suicide, it is in our hands. The vast majority of Anglicans in the world, because they live in the global south, happen to be in that danger zone. You and I are in communion with people whose homelands will and already do flood, experience mega droughts, and find it practically impossible to feed themselves. To how might we see our lives newly informed as being in communion with them? How might we have the spirit Pope Gregory asked of Augustine of Canterbury and ask what our best is that we can offer and what their best might be for us to receive? It can be so easy to feel overwhelmed, helpless, powerless, at the sheer planetary scale of the problem. But I read an article on the plane ride back that made the simple point that the worst thing we can do is nothing. The hardest thing we can find ourselves in being able to move forward is simply to freeze. But take that first easy step. Plant a garden, turn off a light shop for used clothes rather than new ones. 
easy lessons for life. And I wonder what rich lessons there may be as we could read the scriptures together with our siblings in Christ from across the world, asking what the Bible has to teach us about environmental stewardship. Today, the Anglican Communion is planting a communion forest, trees across the parts of the communion that will be a practical step to offset the dangers of climate change. I could see us learning from our siblings across the global south, particularly those living in parts of Australasia, Australia and New Zealand, finding new ways to care for the earth and for one another as we explore new practices for ecologically sustainable living. The call is simply to be the best that we can be, and to be a church with such a beautiful name and intention as all saints means that we have an ambitious and beautiful vision of a life of faith that we might share with all sorts of people in this city and well, well beyond this place. May we take up the challenge to live within this blessed communion, this fellowship divine. Alleluia, alleluia. Amen.